On this episode of Emerge, I'm speaking with Peter Lindbergh. Peter is the creator of the Intellectual Explorers Club in Toronto, Canada, as well as co-author of Mimetic Tribes and Culture War 2.0, a recent Medium article that has been very popular in my strange corner of the internet. In this conversation, we chat about meme plexes and deep uncertainty, gray pills, radical agnosticism, Robert Anton Wilson, how to speak with confidence in the midst of great uncertainty, authentic relating, anti-debates, and pragmatic tribal affiliations for post-tribal peoples. If you're enjoying Emerge and you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, you can find a link to offer some small amount of financial support to the show by clicking on the link in the show notes or by going to anchor.fm slash emerge. Each little bit really does make a difference, not only to the ease with which I can create the show, the time that I can dedicate to its production, but also the kind of psychic um, benefits that I receive when I see that somebody is appreciating uh, the conversations that I'm creating here enough to part with a little bit of money. You know, it really does feel good uh, when I see that roll in. Another way that you can support the show is through leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. iTunes is probably the most popular. Um, and, and that's a great way to share this with a wider audience. So uh, those are some ways that you can support the show if you choose to. Okay, please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Peter Limberg. Welcome back to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm pleased to be joined by Peter Limberg. Peter is the author of a fascinating article that has been making the rounds on at least my kind of weird part of the Twitter internet sphere, which is called Mimetic Tribes and Culture War 2.0, which I, I'll link to in the notes, and I highly, highly recommend checking out. It's one of the most uh, provocative and I think well-written and well-researched articles that I've maybe ever seen on Medium. And uh, the, the centerpiece is a, uh, a spreadsheet of how many, like 34 33 different uh, mimetic tribes and their various attributes. And we, we've talked on the show about a couple of the different tribes, you know, like the Integralists, the Metamodernists, which didn't make it on, but maybe is a subsection of the Integralists, integralists the Post-Rationalists, the Rationalists. They all get some mentions there. Jordan Peterson folks who, who are, are delightfully framed as sorters. Uh, you know, there's they're all there. It's like a kind of uh, Brady Bunch family of uh, subcultures on the internet. And so uh, I was very struck by this article, very inspired. Um, and immediately upon reading it, reached out to Peter to, to invite him on the show and so we could kind of unpack this article, get more of a sense of his perspective and just kind of have a have a jam session about like, what are some of the implications? What are the, some of the fun rabbit holes that this article allows us to take adventures down and all of that? So, Peter, welcome. Welcome to Emerge. Thank you. It's good to be here. Right on. And so, I guess, you know, my, my first question is, uh, just to kind of get started, like, what, what was the inspiration to create this article? Like, what were you seeing that led you to do all this research and, 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 and kind of get in the mind space of all these different tribes? Hmm. That's a really good question. So I run this group in Toronto called intellectual explorers club, and we meet weekly, uh, talking about all sorts of issues. Uh, we have no political or theological or philosophical affiliations. Uh, we just kind of have a book club, an article club, a lecture, and then have a free associative jam session with the people involved. And what I find that the people who attend, and maybe it's how the group is framed, like Intellectual Explorers Club, we have all sorts of people coming, people that are conservative, people that are liberal, people that are uh, theists, people that are atheists. 
And it gets kind of uh, schizophrenic at times, trying to like all these different reality tunnels and perspectives hitting at you. And then me as the facilitator, um, trying to make sense of this and finding that common logical space. Mm. So that, that lived experience of, of dealing with all these perspectives coming at me, that encouraged me to, um, well, it sort of it frustrated me on one end. And, uh, and on the other end, it, it bored me too, mm. because people were so invested in their certain perspective, and they weren't taking the time to understand somebody else's map of reality. So I think that's one um, inspiration for me to uh, dive into the article. And the other one is I've been kind of like geeking out on culture war stuff from an observer point of view for, for a while now. Mm-hmm. Nice. And maybe it would be useful. Uh, or I, So first I'll say just as a kind of, before we dive into the, the or before we geek out too far is uh, just recently, at least as of this recording, uh, Ronan Harrington on the, on the uh, pretty new Alter Ego podcast released a conversation with you, which was just fantastic and covered a lot of the ground that I imagine that we might cover together. And so, you know, for people who are listening to this and, and uh, if you want that is a great, I think, introduction and kind of overview of the article and, and the kind of affordances of the article and, and some of the theory of it. And, and it's it's a wonderful thing to listen to. I'll link to it in the show notes, but we're not necessarily going to cover that same ground, or at least we're going to try not to. Uh, and so I'll, I'll say that first. Um, and then, you know, I think there's so many different directions that we could go in together. I... I I think what I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with, though, is this piece about the uh, multivarious reality tunnels and just like what it's like mm. to be exposed to their reality and attempt to hold them each as valid or at least as like worth honoring. Um, and it sounds like you have that experience um it sounds like both in the intellectual explorers club like people come there and kind of like reveal their whether they know it or not their tribal affiliations by speaking on behalf of certain uh meme plexes um but but that you also i I know you mentioned in the conversation with ronan uh this perhaps got kind of exacerbated uh this what what would you call it almost like i i experienced it as almost a kind of schizophrenic experience where you're like entering mm-hmm. into and validating different worldviews. Um, and you said, I think if I remember correctly in, that, in the conversation with Ronan, like this created a kind of existential crisis for you. And I, I have a very similar experience regularly with this show where people kind of like reach out to me and are like, hey, look, like explore this worldview that I've been a part of, that I've been exploring, that I've been developing or in this subculture that's, you know, for the last 10 years on the internet that I've never seen before. And so I like go in and I kind of dive in. I'm like, oh, wow, this makes a lot of sense. And this is really interesting. And it's just, there's so much out there that is worth knowing. And yet, like, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's, it, it, it does create this kind of fragmented, fractured reality if you're the kind of person, like I think both of us are, who kind of do not want to uh, pretend that any certain reality tunnel, any certain memeplex is the whole picture. And so maybe we can just kind of start our conversation there. Like, what? How, how do you experience that sort of existential crisis or that situation? And, and how was writing the article a way of um, responding to that situation? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So about a year ago, I was experimenting with this uh, rigorous debate club here in Toronto, and I experienced um, that existential crisis of multiple perspectives coming at you quite strongly. And, you know, I was a philosophy major uh, back in university uh, roughly 10 years ago. And so once philosophy touches your life, um, it's like you're kind of uh, condemned for existential crises along the way, uh, if you take it seriously, that is. But... When writing this article, like the process, uh, me and my co-author, Connor Barnes, uh, we started off just wanted to do a spreadsheet. Mm. And then that spreadsheet led to the the whole article. And we split up, uh, we kind of created uh, what we thought the tribes that are at play in the culture war. And we split them up. And then we did research 
And we did research with the principle of charity in hand, you know, so we have the most charitable interpretation of their viewpoint. That's one. And we wanted to describe their viewpoint on their own terms. So there's this neat uh, little idea called the ideological Turing test um, based off the real Turing test. Like if a a computer or AI could trick another human to thinking it's human, then it passes the Turing test. And the ideological Turing test is, uh, let's say if a conservative um, can trick a liberal to thinking it's a liberal, uh, he's a liberal or she's a liberal, then they pass the ideological Turing test. And so we wanted to dive in, use their own terms, use their own um, uh, values and virtues and describe it in such a way that it would pass their ideological Turing test. And it was really fun, but, you know, we wrote this like roughly under a month and I was drinking mm-hmm. tons of coffee every day, just researching and then just jumping from one reality tunnel mm-hmm. to another was just uh, didn't orientate me uh, as I needed to be orientated. So I felt kind of like I was losing my operating system. But uh, actually, when I watched this documentary uh, called Maybe Logic by mm-hmm. Robert Anton Wilson, he's a he's a kind of like a spiritual agnostic and he helped ground me. Um, into kind of managing all these, these perspectives. Hmm. So, and the way I like to call it is, um, is putting yourself in a space. It's like being a performative agnostic and putting yourself in a space where you can method act their reality tunnel. It's like an actor preparing for a role, right? A really good actor um, embodies himself in that role. He embodies the values, he embodies the emotions, he embodies the ideas, and then he becomes it and he's so convincing. But he doesn't lose himself because there's that that safe space. He's either on stage or in front of a camera. And that's the way I like to, to view it. It's, it's method acting reality tunnels. Mm. And, and I'm curious if, uh, I, I do want to double click on the Robert Anton Wilson <laughs> reference. Uh, but before we do that, I'm curious if, any of these, any folks affiliated with these tribes reached out to you and said like, hey, like you totally mischaracterized me or what, was there any kind of negative response from folks who were in those specific reality tunnels? You know, uh, that was the one of the things I was concerned about is, is misrepresenting and, and triggering their sacred values and, and being um, sort of attacked by it. But uh, across the spectrum, people were very positive people from conservatives, people from uh, the liberal kind of tribes, they all reached out and, and made positive comments on it. Um, there are some negative comments, uh, like we apparently got uh, the optimists wrong, some of their, their mm. chieftains. Um, I even reached out to Steven Pinker and he said, no, no, you didn't, uh, you didn't get mm. it right. <laughs> um, so we updated the, that spreadsheet line. Um, there's another, oh yeah, the alt-light, mm. they objected mm. to that terminology. That because it didn't pass, uh, didn't pass our our even own principle in the article. Because our principle in the article is that we want to use kind of terms that they would use on themselves. So instead of using a social justice warrior, we use social justice activist, for example. Right. And I believe the alt light term either got coined by the alt right to create some distance, or it was coined by the the media. Um, I had to look into that, but th- we got some objections on in in that regard. But for the most part, I would say it was a very positive response across tribals. Nice. And so did you did you encounter the work of Robert Anton Wilson after you wrote the article? Or, or was this like, uh, when, when, when did he factor in? Yeah, I was aware of him uh, since my university okay. days. Cool. Um, and he influenced me back, back when I was younger. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't really read much about him now. And since I was wrestling with this, I watched that documentary, maybe logic. And I'm like, yes, this is what I need. This is exactly what I need right now. And, and, and it grounded me. And, and specifically around the, like the kind of uh, pr- very sophisticated form of practicing agnosticism and kind of that fluidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like, um, I don't know exactly what clicked. But just seeing how someone can function, and he can be a high performer, um, he's a, he was a successful author and whatnot, um, and then he could hold all these perspectives and go mm. down them, and not be too committed to them. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah, I I definitely feel like I'm I'm struggling with that right now in my life, and I, I'm definitely I'll go check out maybe Logic. I think it's been a, a number of years since I've seen that. Robert Anton Wilson's work was extremely formative in my own kind of 
philosophical training when I was in uh, university as well. So uh, we share that sort of lineage, um, and it it shows in your work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it it shows in the approach, and I think also the, the the hope, right? The hope that I had in reading this article was that people who were ex- very invested mm-hmm. in whatever reality tunnel, whether they be sorters or um, social justice activists would read this and have a kind of uh, have the kind of firsthand experience where they relativized their tribal affiliation according to just the need to acknowledge that there are so many such a diversity of ways of seeing the world. And I wonder if you've had anybody actually say to you like, you know, I was really in this tribe. This is what I thought was right. Like, and then I saw this article and I was like, oh, hey, you know, actually there are many valid ways of making sense out of the world. Hmm. Nobody reached out to us personally with that. And again, this article is, is pretty new. It's only been uh, up for mm-hmm. two months. And the people that reached out to us seem to have, have get it or got it like yourself and Ronan. Um like the metamodernists. And actually I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of the metamodernists. I knew about them um, vaguely, but uh, there's a lot of compa- uh, compatibility there with what we wrote and what they're about, spe- uh, specifically the listening mm-hmm. society. But yeah, I think it's new. And, uh, and I'd like it to this kind of message to get uh, a little bit more out there. So that's why I'm, I'm accepting these podcast invites. Cause I think like we need to make uncertainty sexy mm-hmm. again. I don't know if it was ever sexy, but we need to make it sexy, right? Because I think everyone has this notion. It's like, okay, we got to be, in order to be appear confident, we have to appear certain. And I, I remember I was on this, um, yesterday I had an interview on a local television show here in Toronto. And then he kept asking me like, oh, so where do you see us in five years? Or what do you recommend for these people? Mm-hmm. I have no clue, man. <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, my knowledge is so limited. My map is so limited. Um, I could tell you like, um, you know, what, what I'm experiencing with this anxiety of not knowing, I can tell you what's happening in my world and what I'm trying to, to do in it, but I can't make these bold predictions about what's going to happen in five years. I think the age of predictions are, are on Mm. the way out. Mm. Yeah. and, And it strikes me as you were speaking that there's a way in which the, rapidly changing nature and just sort of like in your face complexity of the world right now might actually be forcing people to emphasize their tribal affiliations right as a as a kind of guard against the uncertainty and chaos and your and I think I, I we and you know certain of these tribes that you listed like namely in my mind like the post rationalists um, and the maybe the integralists are instead, stressing the building of a kind of negative capacity whereby you become more skillful at tolerating uncertainty and being in that kind of not knowing space, which it's, Mm -hmm. that's hard. That's a hard, uh, uh, good of our bill of goods to sell, right? Like compared to a mimetic tribe who says, Hey, like, look, here's, a very clear orientation. Here's what a good life is. Here's what our, here's what's sacred. Here's what's profane. Um, and how do we make uncertainty sexy when it's so uncomfortable? Hmm. The first thing that came to my mind, I'm just going to run with it is this uh, tweet I read a couple of days ago. And um, I think it's the guy who wrote Sex at Dawn. And he said that, uh, what if uh, Noam Chomsky had charisma, <laughs> right? And I, I thought that was interesting, right? Like like doing a counterfactual on an intellectual's personality. Um, and you could do something else. Like what if Jordan Peterson was uh, dull and boring and didn't have that thumos that he has when he talks? Uh, would his ideas go far and wide? Um so maybe if uh, people, uh, a group of people um, who practice this performative uh, agnosticism and are confident doing so and are seeing some sort of fruits from it, maybe that is attractive. That will be attractive. So it's the people behind uh, the propositions. Um, because 
I'm just wary of people selling things, you know, like, oh, this is going to be the good life. This is yeah. going to be this. Um, that could just serve as a Band-Aid. Yeah, I mean, what and and what what I'm worried about, and and this is something I've been kind of noodling about recently, is to what degree charisma is a result of speaking as if you have a valid model that is complete, right? There's a kind of often I I I think in in like Jordan Peterson, for instance, I think the reason why his charisma is so potent is because he's like so firm in his knowing. Right. And, and I guess, you know, even mm-hmm. Robert Anton Wilson, I think, manages this pretty well through humor. So humor strikes me as one way to kind of invite people into this more complex space. But, you know, y- y- the, the certainty, certainty is so deeply, I, I think, almost even biologically, I'm, or I'm concerned that it is perhaps like biologically sexy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, un- it's unclear to me how we get to the point where, uh, where uncertainty becomes sexy. So let, let's let's spitball here. Um, I'm, 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 it's unclear to me as well. But do you think uh, we can somehow present or be certain with uncertainty? Yeah, I think we can. Um, but it's a it's a it's a less satisfying certainty. You know, it's a less. Uh, uh, hmm. Yeah. Well, do you think it can be? Um, become satisfying you know like this is my where my uh, ridiculous existential hope comes in (laughs) and like let's let's just be an entrepreneur here like how could we see a situation where being uncertain can be sexy and how can we be certain with our uncertainty and that sort of serves as uh, an iterative loop too right because you could you're it's like you're certain with your uncertainty but then you're uncertain with that certainty and then you know it just feeds off each other Mm -hmm. yeah Yep. I, I don't have an answer. Um, yeah, of course you don't. Yeah, that would be a performative contradiction, I think, in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just, in my bones, I feel like uh, there's a way, right? And that's what I'm exploring here at the Intellectual Explorers Club. Yeah, and I think that's that's what comes up for me is that may, there is a kind of like knowing, a, 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 a non-conceptual knowing of this being the way forward that can i i think become a kind of charisma um and a kind of uh, just fascinating quality that's more open ended and and uh, yeah so so there is that kind of possibility of i think accessing a kind of visionary uncertainty which feels appealing um to me well even when you said the word visionary i sort of like just uh, like you know not cringe, but you know, I kind of like, ooh, don't say that. Right? <laughs> it seems too certain having a visionary uncertainty. Um, you know, like uh, I mentioned uh, before we went live, uh, this article I'm writing called uh, The Philosophical Sandbox and uh, Weaponized Agnosticism. Mm. It's not completely formulated, but maybe I could free associate some of the propositions right now, and that might lead us to, to some kind of answer uh, with this uh, certain uncertainty. So I mentioned in the Ronin's podcast, uh, the, the, this concept called the philosophical sandbox. And it, we board it from um, software engineering, where if you have, uh, you know, your production environment, it's live. But if you want to test code or uh, test upgrade, so it doesn't break the whole system, you have a sandbox environment, ensure that code works. And if it works, then you put it in the production environment. And so... I think we need to have a philosophical sandbox. So using the coding analogy, we, we, we look at logic, we look at propositions and, and we see what's truthful, what's accurate, whatever, before we enter it into what I like to call our operating system. And each one of those mimetic tribes, and I say uh, life stances or religions, they have an operating system, right? It's like, it's a map of reality of what is and what reality should be uh, directions of how to navigate reality. And I think we need that operating system to ground us. And my current operating system, I, I also run a, a stoic group. I think it's one of the largest stoic groups in the mm. world, actually. It's Stoicism Toronto. And so that's part of my operating system, this cobbling between Stoicism, existentialism, and uh, Christianity mm. that allows me to move. But I also have this space now where I have this philosophical sandbox and where I can look at ideas on its uh, on their own terms. 
Um, and I think in that sandbox, you have to be radically agnostic, right? So anything could be possible, even the wildest conspiracy theory is possible. And then when you see uh, somebody's map of reality and their directions, you can kind of look at it on its own terms. What if this is true? So, um, yeah, so that's sort of how I'm uh, managing this um, confidence uncertainty is that you have an operating system, but then you have this place where you can just be uncertain and it's fun to play in and it's not threatening Yeah, because there's, there's a sort of a distance. And, and how do you, how do you go about maintaining that healthy distance? I journal a lot. Um, journal a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's actually the first thing I do. You mentioned about if I have any spiritual practices, and I think I used to meditate in the morning for thirty minutes, but I replaced that for journaling for thirty minutes, and that's sort of like re, an mm. opportunity to rewrite my code or meta program, as John C. Lilly likes to call it, the guy who invented the mm-hmm. float tanks. Um, and I engage in, um, I think you follow him on Twitter, Andrew Taggart. He's a, a philosophical, uh, practical philosopher. Uh, I engage. He's like yeah. the real life Socrates. You got to talk to that guy. He's amazing. Um, mm. And mm. he was he was uh, sort of my mentor for for a long time. And we engage in philosophical dialogues over Skype. And it really um, helped me be comfortable with nuance. So mm. th- I think those are two mm. things: engaging in philosophical activities um, and then journaling. And so that's sort of like um, it creates an opportunity to bridge the operating system and any in the sandbox. And if any upgrading needs to be done, I do it there. Nice. And is there any, what's the, what's, is there a significant difference in your mind between this kind of philosophical sandbox and, and gray pilling? Like, is this a method of gray pilling in your mind? Yeah. So I would say, um, gray pilling occurs, um, and again, watch the, the podcast I did with Rowan to kind of flesh that out a little bit more. But gray pilling occurs the moment when um, you realize or you start doubting your your red pill certainties. And I think once you get and gray pilling it could cause an existential crisis at first, right? It's really uncomfortable. But I think once you once you build that muscle of gray pilling, then it just becomes you know part of your life. I, I'm just I'm like. <laughs> I'm spitballing here, right? So it's like I'm not. It's not something that I've uh, like. Uh, it's it's like totally. I'm 100 confident. I'm just exploring out loud, and this is how I think I'm trying to understand what I've been going through for the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And wh- one of the things I struggle with because I, I, I I'm happy that we're we're coming to this place because this is a place that or, or, I've been struggling with these topics. Is I think a lot of people, I imagine a lot of the people that listen to and are attracted to the conversations on this podcast experience these kinds of issues, right? And like one of the things that just came up for me as you were speaking is like, uh, there's a way in which language itself can't help but reify the kind of worldview that's implicated in the words we speak. Like it's really hard to speak with a deep ambiguity implicit in the ways we use words. And like, I think I remember Robert Anton Wilson didn't he like create yeah. his own kind of linguistic yeah, yeah. logic to try to get around this problem? What was that? Like E prime, I think it was called. Yeah, E prime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. And, and so, but but so I I struggle a lot with just like the act of speaking, um, it, because whenever you say something, you're about you're 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 you there there is a kind of implied or tacit certainty. Impl- in that, um, mm-hmm. I'm curious if what that if that if that's true for you or any way that you've. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll respond to that, and then something else came to mind, which I'll bring up. Uh, it's like uh, to me, it's like training yourself to speak with a caveat. I could be wrong, right? And then mm-hmm. if you do that, then you um, what's the word again? You guard your premises, right? That's the the, the technical logical term. You guard your premises. So instead of saying, um, you know. Everyone is like this. You say some people are like this. So that word some is guarding your premise. Um, And so you speak with more guarded premises when you kind of speak with that caveat, I could be wrong. So that's, that's, um, I think one, one simple way to, to get around that, uh, how that language uh, encourages certainty. And so the thing that came to to mind, this might be just a radical pivot, but I'll I'll mention it anyways. Uh, What really helped me was the authentic relating exercises. Uh, I'm, 
you're, you're familiar with the authentic relating movement and circling and, and yeah. stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. And, and how they recommend authentic speech. And then they, I, I love how they distinguish between, okay, your story, what your thoughts, right? Like your script and then the, the emotional reality and, and saying, I feel this right now. I think this right now. And then that's a skill set to kind of have a sensitivity towards it. And that you, what your felt sense um, is trying to tell you. And what I notice when I'm, when I'm doing my journaling or philosophical uh, conversations is that, that that felt sense, that emotion that occurs up when a situation happens, it's like it, it, it's attracted to certain ideas. You know, it, it wants to call forth an idea that justifies its existence. But if mm. you can kind of just pause and just say, okay, this is what I'm feeling right now. And then this is the thoughts I'm attracted to. And, um, and not conflating the two, because I think a lot of people conflate their emotional reality with their cognitive reality. And being able to have some distance between the two is extremely helpful. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it's almost like, uh, I, I, I sometimes think of authentic relating as this kind of space for non-ideological conversations mm-hmm. and almost even like uh, uh, growing this pre-ideological, non-ideological capacity. Because often I think we're, we only know conversational methods that are at least to some degree wrapped up in a kind of memeplex or ideology. Uh, and what you're speaking about makes me think, and this is also uh, echoed, I think, in, in the work of Jordan Greenhall and others, this possibility of kind of non-ideological intellectual conversations, which mm. is, yeah, I mean, I feel like sometimes I get into that space with people when there's a lot of like, a, I would bring again this word, this term like negative capacity where we're kind of okay with being in silence together, being okay, not knowing together. And then, yeah, there's this way in which there's an authentic co-exploration of the conceptual territory that's then not disconnected from our embodiment in this mm-hmm. in this moment you know like uh, you know what i really like about you um and how you talk um this is what this is my read of it is that like there's an earnestness and it seems like you're really struggling with some existential issue and you want to get to the bottom of it um does that that kind of resonate with the uh, with you yeah. when i say that <laughs> Yeah, and and then I guess that's the whole uh, reason why you're doing this, this, uh, this podcast, and and what you're doing in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what do you? Yeah. uh, I don't mean to flip the uh, kind of the host script here, but where do you think? um, Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's there's. uh, gold and shadow in, in most of our parts. And I think that there's definitely some part of me that's just, there's a feeling of inadequacy and I, I, there is this drive to like get it right and to see the world in a clear and truthful way, right? Hmm. That I'm increasingly understanding that that's just not going to happen, right? Hmm. And sometimes that realization is liberating and freeing and sometimes that realization is just crushing and demotivating um, <laughs> but you you hold you hold the tension well i think you hold the tension well between the two and that's what comes out in, in how you talk to me at least mm. thank you i appreciate you saying that i i think you know um one thing and this has been a topic on the show is that is the difference between like um you know the way that we show up in these kinds of environments, like a podcast and like mm-hmm. my, our lives, right? Like I, I, I think I, I can have conversations about this and it does feel like I'm holding the tension pretty well, but sometimes I just get knocked on my ass. Like it really, mm-hmm. I, I find this to be not very like this kind of conversation that we're having right now is not like abstract for me at all. Like I, I go into periods of like real sorrow and depression, um, just with not really knowing completely how to navigate this. And it's interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. you mentioned like, 
this gray pilling process, which, you know, um, I think is a, a, a wonderful idea. And, and, and again, the gray pill is like, you know, this idea that you take the red pill and all of a sudden you're the way you thought you knew the world is, is, is uh, negated and you're opened up to this whole new way. And the gray pill is this kind of movement beyond that, where you realize that there's just endless complexity and nuance and nowhere is safe to stand and everywhere is, is, you know, um, woven with uncertainty and, and kind of like, uh, incompleteness. And it's like, so you get to that gray pill place and it seems to me, or at least my experience of it has been that, that there's, there's this story that I've heard that like you get to the gray pill place and then you, you, you kind of like struggle with it and struggle with it. And then all of a sudden you finally get to a place where, the complexity is beautiful. You move to maximize interestingness and fascination and, and novelty. Um, and, and, and then it's actually a really good place. And it actually is a very expansive place. And it's a very like rich mm-hmm. place to be. Um, my experience is that I go back and forth and I have been going back and forth for years now where sometimes it feels wonderful and, and expanding and other times it just feels like a burden. And I want the certainty of just a particular meme plex and like, I don't know which direction to walk in. You know, I don't know what vision to believe in for the future. I don't know what's true. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, it, exacerbated by the fact that I, I have to have conversations on the internet, right? And like keep exploring <laughs> ideas when a part of me just wants to go into the woods and like chill for a little bit. But like, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, so 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 that back and forth, I think, is really present for me, uh, really present for me. And um, that tension to kind of resolve it, is that that's what essentially is the motivating this podcast and, and what you're doing and putting out in the world. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think that that's... I bet you didn't guess this would turn into a therapy session. Huh? I mean, I'm always happy when it does. <laughs> use all the help I can. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, something came to mind. Um, yeah, it slipped my mind. It slipped my mind. If it comes back, I'll bring it up. But yeah, I thought that was beautiful what you said. And uh, I really appreciate the sort of that raw honesty. Oh, yeah, this is what I wanted to say. This is what I wanted to say. Um mm. I think there's sort of this this kind of informal community that's 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 forming on the internet with the rally uh, point alpha and, mm-hmm. and you know, the meta modernists and the intellectual deep web, um, and they're trying to figure out how to play the meta game, you know. Mm. And and Peterson talks about this a little bit about you know how we have to have this balance between order and chaos, and then order is going back to the metaphors I used. Order is having that tight operating system. But if your operating system is, is too ordered, then that becomes pathological and that will lead you down to the, uh, the hellish road. But if you have too much chaos, if you're just swimming in a, a philosophical sandbox and have no operating system, that will be hellish mm. as well. And so it's like the metagame is a, basically the, the skill set of wisdom is, is knowing the proper balance between the two. And I think we're trying to discover that collectively together via these podcasts, these blogs, um, how to get that right and speak it in a language that we can understand. Yeah. Yeah. That feels true to me. I, I appreciate that framing. Um, yeah. And, and there is this kind yeah, this, this meta tribe, or maybe it's just a new tribe that is able to understand its own relativity and yet cohere anyways, right? Like most yes. tribes, yeah are able to create a kind of coherent identity because of the lines of certainty they draw around their beamplex. And yet you're pointing out like, you know, yeah, metamodernism is its kind of thing. And then there's rally point alpha, which I'm glad that you brought up and this sort of emerging game B and even the post rationalists, like there's this kind of like constellation of groups that again, are able to take their tribal identification, not so seriously, um, but more maybe maybe practically or pragmatically as a mode of organizing themselves. Um, and I noticed that in the conversation with Ronan, you shared that you identify as uh, primarily in, in the integral tribe and the post-rationalist tribe, which uh, are also the tribal wow. 
yeah so, sorry go uh, correct yeah, me. i wouldn't say i i wouldn't say i identify but i'm i'm most attracted mm. to to those two out of the ones listed and mm. that's the ones i saw you okay. tweeted as well that you said you you identified with yeah, well, so here's here's <laughs> this is like you know I, I kind of grew up in the Buddhist tradition and and we, there's a kind of joke at least for people who are a little bit more ironic about it uh, uh, that Buddhists are like this the religion where nobody wants to identify as a Buddhist, right? So you yeah. ask somebody like, are are you a Buddhist? And they say like, no, 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 but I you know I meditate every day and I go on Zen retreats mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and I've taken the well, you know, whatever. They, they're, they're behaving as if they're a Buddhist, but they don't identify as a Buddhist, which mm-hmm. um, in that case actually does undermine, I, I, it did for me and I, for peers that I know, um, undermine their ability to participate in the kind of community aspect of that approach. And so he, here, again, I, I noticed that I don't identify, or I wouldn't have said that I identify as an integral ist or a post-rational ist or whatever if you had asked me before reading your article but afterwards i was like oh actually you know there's like there's there's good reason to just identify and just Mm. act as if because then we can start to organize and build community and like gain power because you know the whole context of this article it seems is, is there is this culture war that's happening and and you know, I do believe that if the integralists, the meta metamodernists, the uh, uh, post-rationalists, all these people, if they, if they rally point alpha, if they could gain more power, that would be good for the outcome of the culture war and for keeping it from becoming a, a kinetic, you know, physical um, war. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Or how's that? How does that land with you? Hmm. I'm just I'm just allowing the the mind to, to free associate right now, but. I'd like to see the post-rationalists and the integral theorists seduce more people. Mm. I wouldn't want to frame it as power because then you start getting, becoming an engineer. Um, but I, I'd like to see them uh, seduce more people like they seduced me. And, mm. you know, Ken Wilber says the best, th- the best theory is the one that gets you to the next. Right. And I think, um, you know, if we're going to get to another theory and we're not going to, uh, you know, destroy ourselves with some of uh, the existential crises and risks that we're facing, then I think we have to ha- uh, embody a more um, post-rationalist and integral theorist mindset um, and be able to have these discussions, honest discussions and say, you know what, I don't know what's going on, but let's, let's try to figure it out honestly and authentically mm. with the principle of charity and not have this bullshit certainty. Nice. I, w- I will say, though, just to push back a little bit, like seduction is a form of power, right? That is a way of gaining and, and sort of like using power. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I do like this idea of, of, of seducing, though. It's a, different, it's a different way. It's like less beating over the head and more attracting, which makes sense and I think would yeah. be kind of differentiator between a lot of how the other many of the other tribes seem to operate perhaps and and the 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 other component though of it i think is that taking on even if you're one of these sort of post-tribal identities right taking on and a kind of like uh, uh label right even though you're you're probably to some degree allergic to labels if you're a part of this post-tribal group Mm -hmm. um, taking on a label because then it allows you to find the others right and start to actually like build that web of relationships which you know call it gathering power but certainly i think as human beings who are you know as at least my experience is deeply uh we we need that sense of community and belonging and we can't all just be like our isolated nodes in a in a distributed network of post-tribal you know humans and so i'm curious Mm. what you what you think of that like the the kind of idea of of acting as if you are in a tribe even though you can see the uh, limitations and incompleteness of that identity yeah yeah I have to think more about the strategy that you proposed. And I, if I were to repeat it in my own words, it's, um, it's, it's a good thing to f- uh, label ourselves, uh, especially if uh, underneath that label, uh, 
rep, uh, there's a bunch of propositions that represent what you're kind of about. And then by adopting that label, you can kind of, it's like a beacon to find other people and then you can find each other, create a community and have all that good stuff. Mm. Um, that, that may be, uh, if that, if I'm understanding you correct, you correctly, I think that could be a path. Um, another thing, uh, that just came to mind is like, you know, I, I created this artifact with my co-author, uh, this, this, uh, mimetic tribes and culture 2.0. And you, you found me, you know what I mean? Mm. You got on my radar. Mm-hmm. And then now, and if, if I feel like you're the type of person I would want to be in a tribe with, right? Cause we're like, I love, I love how you talk. You're, you're, we're on like the edge of our, 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 our seats really. Right. We don't know where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. This is exciting. And we didn't need a label to, to, to find each other. That's right. Um, so yeah, I, I'm open to that strategy that you mentioned, but I, th- I think there also could be, could be other ways. And something I'm also trying to do here in, in Toronto, um, where, you know, I have this space, we meet weekly, uh, and a lot of people come, the, the group is pretty popular. Uh, but I do feel kind of uh, uh, a loneliness, uh, existential loneliness when I when I talk sometimes, because I don't feel understood. Like I'm the one doing a lot of the understanding, but I'm not feeling understood in return. Hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm introducing sort of a, like activities like the anti-debate in order to build that capacity for people to understand others' perspectives. Because this is something that uh, uh, I was thinking about when the whole NPC meme was was coming in. Mm. And I'm sure you're familiar with the, the NPC meme. Mm-hmm. And I did this tweet that said, uh, all mimetic tribes have their NPCs. Um, mm. And it's like when, when you understand someone's uh, presuppositions and their, their, their axiomatic propositions, you can kind of almost predict what they're going to say. You know, it's like the, I have a lot of new atheist type people who come to the group and it's like, you kind of, okay, let's mm. press the button, say the line. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and there's a closure principle that they have there and they don't want to go anything farther beyond that. But I'm like, okay, let's just act as if maybe God exists or, or something, you know, and then let's, let's kind of explore from there. Uh, but no, that's stupid. That's wrong. And in other mimetic tribes cases, that's evil to do that. Um, so in a way, like uh, the whole meta programming thing, in order to not be an NPC, it's like you got to have, you have to be constantly ready to program yourself and allow somebody else to influence your program. And that's a really kind of risky thing to do, but it's also very exciting. Mm, totally. Yeah. 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 And I, I, one thing that you said that kind of struck me was um, this you said that you, you, you do a lot of the understanding and that you don't feel often very understood and that really like uh that connected with me that impacted me um and i want to reflect to you that like even in the way that we've had this conversation and the questions that you've asked me i i felt and i feel understood by you in a way that feels very rare and mm-hmm. i think that there is you know, one of the reasons I imagine that people like to be in a tribe is that there's that that then creates a context that they can go to and get kind of like seen and validated for their operating system, right? They go and they're like, "Yeah, your your operating system is chill. Like, I know, I I, I use it too. Like, it it it's good, you know." And mm-hmm. I, I I do feel like that is something that is missing from these kinds of uncertain these these uh these tribes that are are deeply uncertain about how reality is um and that mm-hmm. that is on some level just like important and healthy for us as biological beings to experience and um what what then comes to mind is that maybe there is this way of kind of weaving together this deep appreciation of uncertainty with the practices that both you and I have been exposed to with authentic relating that can create that kind of necessary, healthy affiliation and sense of belonging without needing to create artificial certainties, even like labels or things like that, that, that are problematic, you know, that there is a, there is, there's reasons why you wouldn't want to adopt a label and start uh, identifying with it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'll say this thing when you said that, uh, you felt deeply understood by me, you know, I got a little teary eyed there when you said that, cause I, I also mm. felt deeply understood by you as well. Mm. Uh, but, uh, what I wanted to mention is that, you know, we work on something called the anti-debate here in Toronto. And I mentioned this the last one, but I'll say it again for your audience is, um, let's say if you have a disagreement with somebody, they, 
they give you their position, but you have to understand their position first before you give your disagreement. So they have to say, I feel understood. And then you give your disagreement and then they have to understand with your disagreement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like really Trojan horsing uh, a two interlocutors with the spirit of understanding, you know? Right. And then train that capacity to understand. And of course you can disagree, right? Of course. Um, but that muscle of understanding is missing. Yeah. I find, right? Yeah, totally. But but the, but the desire to be understood is present for everyone. Or I or, or, or I, I think it I'll, yes, I'll make yeah. that supposition. Uh, and so therefore, if we can kind of use that as the carrot to get people to participate in these kinds of acts of mutual understanding that hopefully decenter a little bit the the reification of their uh, memeplex. <laughs> We're going to use geeky terms. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that that, that <laughs> then you know there is this kind of weaving together of the some of the qualities of authentic relating, like this sort of. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm not sophisticated enough in that world, but th- th- there is this kind of echo of that in the in the desire to be understood. And like, where are you checking? You know, when do when you feel understood? How do you know you feel understood? For me, there it is a kind of embodied, uh, non conceptual recognition of like, oh yeah, okay, boom. Like even somebody can. I think for me, I don't know if this is true in your experimentation, but that like, you know, you're saying that th- there, there's. Uh, Anybody can be an NPC. Like you could even re- repeat back to me words that, if I saw on a piece of paper, would indicate that I you understand me or what I'm saying. But that if there's not a kind mm-hmm. of quality underneath that, like I can feel the impact of when somebody says words that are accompanied, at least in my imagination, by like a felt sense of understanding and really like, yeah, yeah. What, what, what is that? Is that? It's being like, it's, worked out in your experiments or how do you experience that? Like, I really like what you said. Cause it's like, like, even if you, if you're inaccurate with your map of the other person, they can feel the spirit of understanding. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of disarming. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, it's interesting. It's like sort of milieus or social circles you go into. It's like, sort of frames certain different uh, dispositions. Like if you go to people who are highly obsessed with their status um, and they, they just want to say, so what do you do? So they can find out what number you are and then they treat you accordingly in that zero sum game that they're playing in their head. Um, I find those people, you have to work a little harder in order to get that place um, of understanding. Mm-hmm. But I totally agree with you that everyone has that kind of innate need to understand. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, if you, want to be loved what do you do you love Mm -hmm. right if you want if you want to be understood you understand um and it always might not work but i think that's one pathway to get there nice so i notice so we have we don't have too much time left in the conversation you have you have 15 more minutes is that right before we have yeah okay um well, what, one thing I, I find myself curious about, and this is my podcast, so I get to go in the direction that I'm curious about, uh, is is this is the um, Intellectual Explorers Club. Because I noticed that when you were talking about it, it sounded like an environment that I wanted to participate in. Um, and yet I don't live in Toronto. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear more, a little bit more about like what what it is that you do there? How is it structured? Um, did you create it yourself or is it based off of a model that you saw somewhere else? Like, is there any plans to spread it? Like what's, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been um, existing for about a year now, a little bit over a year. Uh, I created it first as a meetup group and then kind of did it as a podcast and, you know, I have other plans for it. Um, and, Really, I was running a stoicism group, right, which was was great, but it felt limited because, you know, I wanted to talk about other things other than stoicism. Because uh, I, I just, one of the things um, ever since I was young, when I got introduced to philosophy, I just loved ideas. I always read all kinds of different books. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked the idea of exploring the books or those topics, perspectives. So I just wanted a space selfishly to, uh, you know, have an excuse to read books and talk about it. And so I started it off as that. And I feel like I'm, I'm pretty of a creative person um, with, with the event space. So I started uh, 
just prototyping different events like anti-debates or um, one I'm coming up is called philosophical speed dating. So mm. it's like the speed dating format, but a way oh, to cool. find a, a philosophical interlocutor. Right. Yeah. And so I'm just experimenting with these different events and I invite different people to come in. I, uh, we had this lecture series called Dare to be Wise. I invited uh, the effective altruist people, mm. um, street epistemologists. I invited all sorts of people to tell about their ideas just to introduce. Um, and I didn't have like this, this kind of like, you know, I'm doing this model agnostic and uh, introducing all these perspectives. I didn't have that mm. in mind when I first started, but it's sort of emerging that, oh, maybe this is what I'm doing here. Um, and I, I mentioned this as, as well in the last podcast with Rowan, but uh, Ken Wilber's book, uh, Trump in a Post-Truth World, he said that, you know, the current manifestation of the postmodern um, level of consciousness is pathological. Uh, it's not healthy. And we need a, a healthy version of postmodernism. I think that's exactly what, what we've been talking about today, right? Being able to take a perspective on its own term and have that space where you can do that, whether it's a physical space in, in Toronto in one of the meetings, or whether it's a space in your own mind in a journal or, or, or between you and me right now. Mm. Nice. Yeah, well, I, I, and I want to, yes, you can do it in a journal. And yes, you can do it by just like listening to conversations like this. But there is, I think, again, something unique about performing that kind of, uh, fluidity or po the postmodern relativity with other people so that you recognize that it's safe to do that as a human. Um, I, I, uh, yes. It's so beautiful. I, I, I find those spaces to be very rare and beautiful myself, where I can be in a group of people who's all kind of tolerant of that kind of experimentation and relativity, actually, and not just sort of uh, alluding to it. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. And I, uh, out of those three things uh, between a one-on-one by yourself in a journal, I much prefer the group or at least I, I enjoy it. I feel a lot of joy, especially when it goes well. Um, and I, just to finish answering your previous question, uh, I would, I have ideas to expand it elsewhere. Uh, I want to kind of like a, maybe a more model that's tight, the prototype, but if anybody's interested, any listener wants to run an intellectual explorers club in their city, uh, reach out to me, uh, and then we can have a discussion. Um, but yeah, I, I really think um, that sort of that healthy postmodern state is needed. Nice. And yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about you, and you demonstrated this in the article you wrote, as well as just in this conversation as well, and, and, and the one with Ronan, is your tendency to want to experiment with like what I, what I would refer to as kind of social technologies, right? Like ways of ordering mm. human relationships in a physical space to kind of maybe alter consciousness or whatever, you know, I think authentic, I think of authentic relating that body of practices as being a kind of social technology and things like yes. uh, philosophical speed dating and anti-debates. Like it's just a really fun mm -hmm. and rich space to have that freedom to explore creating facilitated environments like that. Uh, and I would really, I would invite you. I think one thing that'd be really cool. I would love to see personally is just like a, a list of those technologies, those techniques that you've explored that you're willing to share, like in, in, uh, out in public. Because you know I, the, the philosophical speed dating, for instance, I would just run that as a one-off thing and see what happens. You know. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, you know now that I'm kind of putting myself out there, getting <laughs> yeah. my internet skin, if you will. Um, I'll start, I'll start putting more videos out there and, and experiment with that. Um, but yeah, thank you for, um, being geeking out about it as well. It excites me when I hear other people are resonating with them. Yeah. Well, and, and it's and, only, and, yeah, go on, go, go, please. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. One thing that also came to mind is that, you know, the authentic relating, we've been talking about it a, a lot and they, they refer to it as a we space, mm -hmm. right? Um, like this collective, uh, consciousness. Uh, but I find, um, it, it's there's a bias towards emotion, emotional expression in the authentic relating, and I'm I'm hungry for like a cognitive we space, and you know finding that shared ground, that logical space, that shared ground and logical space, uh, how to do that, right? And that's that's what excites me, and I think that's maybe what this intellectual explorers club is is trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And, and I think just to draw these parallels for listeners, I, I, that's what I hear folks like Bonita Roy and 
Jordan Greenhall and others who have been on the show, what they're kind of attempting to find the architecture, the mechanisms, the practices that might more reliably bring us to that collective cognitive we space. Because that seems to be, or the indications are, I think, to kind of weave this into the bigger picture, is that like that's the kind of space that we as humanity, or at least some some subculture of humanity, needs to learn to sort of become facile and operating from in order to really approach the complexities of the world today outside of a kind of hierarchical decision making uh, sort of framework. And so there's that 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 mm-hmm. that investigation isn't just really exciting i think on an individual level but it's really important uh on a on a kind of social cultural level too and even a political level i think yeah 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 and i think it's like um this sort of like cognitive we space there's a desire for it to emerge right collectively yeah. and so it's running adjacent to all the the structural changes that we're experiencing in society yeah yeah. Well, uh, Peter, thank you for coming on the show. And, and um, I appreciate the kind of work and study and research that you're doing to uh, open up this space for more people. I think the way that you're doing it is is unique. And, and the, uh, the results in the change in your own consciousness, is, as can be seen in the article that you wrote, uh, indicate to me that what you're doing is extremely fruitful. So um, again, I just I really appreciate the work you're doing and the way that you approach this. I feel a lot of, uh, you know, kind of like brotherhood with the your orientation. And so, uh, yeah, ha- so happy to have you on the show. This is a really fun conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, thanks for finding me. <laughs> oh, yeah.